A couple of weeks ago, we did the tshuva of Rabbi Yeshua Sansino, Nachal Yeshua, about the Ancona boycott, the proposed Ancona boycott. Tonight, we're going to study another two tshuvas, another two tshuvas of the same, of the same, of the same time period on the same question, the boycott of Ancona. So, to recap first what the, the situation was, there were Portuguese Jews who had converted to Christianity back in Portugal, they had fled, they had left Portugal, they had settled in Ancona, they had commitments from the papal authorities, from the Pope, that they could revert to being Jews. The Pope changed a few times, there was a new Pope, Pope Paul IV, a fanatic, religious fanatic, who began to persecute the Jews, culminating in the murder, the massacre of 24 or 25 Jews who were killed al Kiddush Hashem. Other Jews fled. As we'll see in one of the tshuvas tonight, the Pope was still trying to uh, negotiate with the other rulers into whose jurisdiction they had fled to get them back so he could kill them. So other Portuguese Jews had left Ancona and were now, some of them were now in the Italian city of Pizarro. The, there was a movement among Turkish Jewry, Sephardic Jewry, Mediterranean Jewry, to boycott the port of Ancona, commercial boycott, in part to punish the Pope, to avenge his, his, uh, his awful treatment to the Jews, to punish him and to uh, teach him a lesson and to stand up for the, for the honor of Jews and the honor of, and honor of Klai Yisrael. And in part, perhaps the more significant part, it was to reward the, the, the Duke de Urbino, the Duke of Pizarro, for taking in the Jews and to, 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 to show him a karzatov, to redirect, to boycott Ancona, and to redirect the trade that otherwise would have gone to Ancona, to Pizarro, to punish the Pope, to avenge the Jews, to reward the Duke of Pizarro. Moreover, a little more, uh, a little more darkly, there was a concern that if they didn't come through and transfer the trade to Pizarro, the Duke of Pizarro, who may have been a decent guy, but was also expecting the commercial benefits to his enlightened self-interest, he would be very upset if the commercial benefits did not materialize, and he might uh, take out his wrath on the Jews, either punish them himself, or as we'll see tonight, turn them over to the Pope who wanted them. So for a variety of, for a variety of uh, political diplomatic reasons, there was a movement to, to, to pass a formal boycott. The merchants, the Sephardic merchants of the Mediterranean, of Turkey, and so on, would boycott Ancona, thereby redirecting trade to the port of Pizarro, that would serve a variety of useful purposes. On the other hand, there was opposition to this boycott as well. In the previous share, we discussed the opposition that Rabbi Shua Santino discussed, which was the opposition from the Jews who were left in Ancona. There were still some Jews in Ancona. They were concerned that if the Pope was provoked by being boycotted, he would become very angry at them. He would blame them. He would assume that they were behind this plan to, uh, to insult him and to uh, injure him commercially like this, and he might take out his wrath on them. We'll see tonight, there was another issue, another, another source of opposition to the boycott, and that was the merchants themselves, the merchants who would be doing the boycotting, who would be abandoning the port of Ancona and redirecting their trade to Pizarro, they were not so happy, the merchants, some of the merchants at least, because apparently there was a concern that the port of Pizarro was not really suitable for the maritime traffic in question, and it would cause them significant financial losses. The nature of these losses is not entirely clear, but they stood to suffer possibly commercial losses from participating in this boycott. Uh, as we'll see also, as we saw last time as well, the Duke, uh, the, the Duke de Urbino was actually improving his port. He actually was spending money to, to redo the port. As a matter of fact, some felt that one of the concerns was he had already done some of these expenditures, and, and if he didn't get the expected increase in trade, he would be very upset that he wasted money on his port if he's not getting the increased trade. On the other hand, the, on, on the other hand we'll see that the time some of these tubes were written, he had not yet made these improvements, and Postkin were discussing whether the merchants should do the boycott and go to Pizarro and thereby suffer from an inadequate port, whether we could assume that the Duke would make these improvements. In any event, these were the major issues. The, the main argument in favor of the boycott was the Pope had to be punished, the martyrs had to be avenged, the Duke of Pizarro had to be rewarded and acknowledged, 
and we have to avoid him becoming enraged at, uh, at a lack of Akarasatov by the Jews who were in his territory. That was the pro-boycott argument. The anti-boycott argument was, on the contrary, the, the, the Jews in Encono might suffer from a boycott. Additionally, the merchants claimed, as we'll see tonight, the merchants claimed that they would have financial hardship by being forced to go along with this boycott. So, in the previous year, we discussed the position of Rabbi Yeshua Sancino. His analysis, we're not going to go through all the details, his analysis basically was, we have to weigh the expected danger of each policy. There's no question that if the, if the, boycott would, that if the absence of a boycott would cause, would cause, uh, would, would cause danger for Pizarro, and, and there's no downside for Encona, of course we would do the boycott. Vice versa as well, he said, if, 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 if the danger is only one-sided, of course we take the course of action that there'll be no danger. But if there's danger both ways, then he argued, Che Valtasa, we should not do the boycott. And if it's a suffix, if we don't really know, he said, at the end of the day, he felt that the, he felt that the concerns of Pizarro were not that great anyway. So he felt that the Che Valtasa adif, we don't know, and we should just not do the boycott because either the danger, if the danger is equal or if we simply don't know what's really in danger, he made an argument purely on that he tried to... Uh, he tried, to, he tried to evaluate how strong these concerns were, and he therefore argued that, given the uncertainty involved and the potential for danger on both sides, he argued, Shea Valtasse, that we should not do the boycott, and we should just uh, allow the status quo to continue, that merchants can continue to uh, ply their trade in Encoda. Tonight, we're going to see two other chuvas that were written on, the, on this topic, on this question. One was by Rabbi Yosef Ibn Leib, the Maria Ibn Leib, and one was by the Mabit, Rabbi Moshe of Trani. Maria bin Leiv was one of the Gedolea poskim of that time, of the Sfardim in Constantinople, I think, at the time, and the Mabit was in Eretz Yisrael. The Maria bin Leiv is an interesting figure. He's mostly known for his tshuvas today. I don't think we know that much about his life in general. He was an outstanding Talmud Chacham of the time, contemporary of the Shulchan Aruch, a, a, tremendous, a, a tremendous era for the flowering of Sfardic Torah, as a matter of fact, the Chidah in Shem HaGadolim recounts a, uh, a tradition that at that time, Klal Yisrael needed a Shulchan Aruch, they needed somebody to codify the halachas and make them organized and accessible. There were three people, all named Yosef, who were worthy, who had the greatness in, in, of Talmudic stature, who could have uh, done such a project. Three people named Yosef. Rabbi Yosef Karo, the one who eventually did it, Rabbi Yosef Ibn Leiv, and the third one, Rabbi Yosef Taitatzak, another outstanding Talmud Chacham of the time. And Menashemayim, Rabbi Yosef Kara was chosen because of his great humility, because of his anava. Another story he tells the Shem HaGadolim, also about Maria bin Leib and the Shulchan Aruch, is that when the Beis Yosef, the, the, the Beis Yosef was the first version of the Shulchan Aruch, the, what they call the Aruch, the, the long version. Shulchan Aruch is the Kutzer, the, the short version, the abridged version. So when the Beis Yosef first came out, the, the structure of the Beis Yosef is that he finds... He, he tells you the source of every halacha in the Torah, and then he, he brings down many other Rishonim as well. Basically, it's a, to a large extent, he helps provide the sources and trace the halacha back through the Rishonim. So Ibn Leiv was not a fan of the Shulchan Aruch. He felt it would, he, he didn't need it. He felt it, would, it wouldn't be good for his students. He felt uh, he would learn the Torah. Any halacha that would come up, he would immediately tell everyone what the source was. He felt that, you know, the same arguments we have today about Art Scroll, about other uh, modern Sfarim that make learning easier... So Ibn Leib, apparently, in his time, did not approve of the Shulchan Aruch. And he actually, he actually uh, interdicted it. In his yeshiva, he said, no one's allowed to learn the Beis Yosef. Until, one day, they learned a certain halacha in the Torah. Ibn Leib simply could not remember the source of the halacha. So finally, he conceded, he said, let's pull out the Beis Yosef and look it up. And they found the halacha in the Beis Yosef, and he said, I see Menashe Mayim. They're, they're, they're advocating for the Beis Yosef. The Beis Yosef is apparently a worthy work, and from then on he, would, uh, he repealed the ban, and they were allowed to learn Beis Yosef. But in any event, Rabbi Yosef Ibn Leiv was one of the outstanding Gidoli Torah of that time, of the Svardim in Turkey. And the third one, the Mabit, in Tzvas at the time, also from that Dordea, from that tremendous generation of, uh, that tremendous generation of Chachamim, Mabit. So, again, Rabbi Shua Sancino was against the boycott. He felt the boycott was wrong as a matter of policy. Ibn Leiv and the Mabit represent the, the rest of the spectrum. Ibn Leiv, we'll see, was entirely in favor of the boycott, and the Mabit is somewhere in between. Mabit thinks that 
avoiding Ancona is probably a good idea, but for various reasons, he doesn't think that this is something we can demand. We can, uh, he doesn't think we can enact this as a binding boycott, and we'll see the arguments they make as we go through their chubas. So we'll begin with Ibn Leiv, Rabbi Yosef Ibn Leiv. He tells the story, we've already seen the story, we'll read it again from his perspective. Ancona, Massa, in the city of Ancona, there were Jews, there were Turkish Jews who used to do business with, in the port of Ancona, and there were Jews from Portugal who had, uh, that, that, that there were Jews from Portugal who had been conversos, who had been forced to convert to Christianity, their, their, their fathers already had been forced to contribute to convert in Shas Hashmad, the Pope gave them permission to revert to Judaism. But now there's a new pope, a fanatic pope, a strict pope, Pope Paul IV. Ibn Lev mentions among the, the abominations that, that he perpetrated was the burning of the Talmud throughout Italy. This is actually a, uh, an interesting claim. I mentioned briefly last, last time, I wasn't sure what this was all about. The reference, apparently, is to the burning of the Talmud in Rome in 1553, in the year Hei Shin Yudalit. Now, I was confused last time because Pope Paul IV was not actually Pope in 1553. He didn't ascend to the papacy until a year or two later. So I wasn't sure why he was being blamed for the burning of the Talmud. The answer apparently is, at the time of the burning of the Talmud in 53, it was actually 53 in Shin Yudalit. It was Rosh Hashanah of Shin Yudalit. So the, it was still 53 according to the, the Western calendar. It was already Shin Yudalit. Normally, normally the year is the same, the, 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 in the single digits place the year is the same. Right now it's 2021 in the Western calendar and it is, uh, and it's Tufshin, and it's Hey Tufshin Pei Aleph in the Jewish calendar ending in Aleph. Rosh Hashanah falls out earlier than January 1st, so for a few months the, the Hebrew year is one year ahead. So this was Rosh Hashanah, so with Shin Yud Dalad, it was still 1553. Now the Pope who ordered the burning of the Talmud was actually Pope Julius III. But the, apparently the fellow who eventually became Pope Paul IV, at the time his name was Cardinal Giovanni Pietro Carafa. He was, a, he was a cardinal, and he was one of the main movers and shakers involved in the burning, so we blame him for the burning, even though he was not the pope at the time. Ibn Leib's language is perhaps a little misleading. It's true that he was a pope who hated the Jews, and he was the one who burned the Talmud, actually before he became the pope, but either way, the, we, we, lay the, we lay the blame for that at his door. And... He began to, to, to punish the Jews. He eventually burned them in Ordo Dafes, many tzaddikim and chassidim. And therefore, there was a movement to make a boycott. There was a movement to enact a boycott against uh, Ancona. And they asked the Chachamim and the various kahilos across Turkey that they should agree to this uh, Haskama, that no Jew in Turkey should... Turkey at the time means the Ottoman Empire. They controlled uh, parts of the Middle East and much of what today is Greek, Greece, and the Balkans, and Turkey. Turkey is a shorthand for the Ottoman Empire, at the time a major, a major power in Europe and Asia Minor. They wanted to punish the Pope. He created a grave, Chil Hashem, by burning Jews. These things are always double-edged. In a way, it was a great Kiddush Hashem, that they were Moser Nefesh for being Jews. It was also a Chil Hashem, that he was, uh, he was executing in a horrible way Jews. So... So they, so they wanted to uh, they, they wanted to enact this boycott. A first part of the reason is to punish the Pope and to avenge the murder of the Jews. B to reward Pizarro. Pizarro, the Duke there, the Duke de Urbino, had taken them in, and he in the hope that they would do business there, and the and they would abandon the the papal states who had been uh, terrible to the Jews, and burning the Talmud even. He mentions that again, and also the Duke. Spent, would spend, already did spend, he spent money, much money, Maman Rav, to fix Kefiyama, to fix the seaport, in order that the ship should be able to uh, dock there uh, safely. Now that he sees the Jews are not uh, reciprocating, they're not actually transferring their business there, it is Karav Levade. Again, uh, Rabbi Shua Sancino wasn't sure this was Karav Levade. He wasn't sure who was, whether this is really true or not. People argued about this, but Ibn Lev represented in the Shaila as Karav Levade. It's a near certainty that he would turn them over to the Pope, men, women, and children, the refugees of Ancona, he would turn them back to the Pope. You're not doing me any good here. You're, you're not pulling your weight. You're, you just came here, and now, and now you uh, disappointed me. Back to the Pope you go, and he is going to kill you. So now the question was, do they have the right 
to enact such a boycott, the Chachamim, all the Chachamim unanimously, or by consensus, or Rubam, by majority vote, or Rov HaKehilos, most of the communities, the various Farda communities in Europe and Turkey, can they force the Miut, can they force those who are unwilling to join this boycott, can they force them to join this, the, this agreement to boycott and Koda? So Ibn Lev, most of his tshuva is not about evaluating the, the, the strength of the claims of both sides. Unlike Rabbi Yeshua Sansino, who spent most of his tshuva trying to figure out uh, which claims are true and deciding in a vacuum whether, whether the Haskama, the boycott, is a good idea or a bad idea, the Maria Ibn Leib discusses it from a procedural perspective. What is the rule? Do communities, do hachamim, do they have the right to pass binding legislation if there are those who disagree? A very fundamental question. What is the power of local government? Do lo- does local government, the leaders of a city, or by plebiscite, the referendum, the members of a city, do they have the right to pass, to regulate their economic life? Do they have the right to pass binding regulations to control economic life of the city, of the community, of the group of communities? Is there such a right? Do they have the right to do that against, by majority rule, against the opposition of some holdouts? A very, very fundamental question. So he brings the Gemara in Baba Basra, a seminal Gemara. The Gemara is very, very heavily discussed. Rishonim and Achronim, contemporary poskim. It's, uh, it's a remarkably terse and, uh, and brief Gemara for such an important topic. But again, as I said, the issue, the issue being discussed here is essentially local or regional government. We're familiar with Din Malchusadina, the idea that Halacha recognizes the right of the sovereign power, Jew or non-Jew, we're familiar with the discussions that Halacha recognizes the notion that kings and rulers and governments have the right to legislate, have the right to govern their country. The question here is, what about on the, on the, uh, on the more local level? What about a city regulating its own economic life? What about uh, a state, a province? What, what about regional government under the king? Do the people themselves, or the people's local representatives, do they, have, do they have any power, according to Halacha, to regulate economic life? And the source of this, the source of this question is a, is a brief Gemara in Baba Basra. The Gemara in Baba Basra says that Rasha and Bnei Ha'er, members of the city, have the right to make certain changes to the tzedakah structure of the city. There was the Kupa and the Tamchay, which were two different charity funds, and they could, uh, they could transfer money from one to the other. Similarly, the Brisa goes on, they have the right to regulate measures, weights and measures. They have the right to set rules about prices, price controls. They have the right to set, uh, regulate the price of labor. Today, when we talk about regulating labor, we typically mean a floor, a minimum wage. $15 an hour, $7 an hour, $12 an hour. Back then, the discussion usually was a maximum wage. We want to make sure that we do, people, that people don't pay the workers too much to avoid inflation, to avoid uh, too much pressure on business. But either way, that the principle is the same. The, technically, economically, if not uh, socially and philosophically, but, but the, the legal principle is the same. The community has the right to regulate weights and measures, to regulate prices, to re- regulate wages, and and to find people who are breaking their rules breaking their rules of whatever they establish. So this Gemara, this Gemara is the source, is the source in the Talmud for the idea of local government, for the idea that communities, cities, and so on, have the right to regulate their own economic life. So Ibn Leib brings this Gemara, notes that this is the source of the whole, of the whole, the whole sugya, the, the whole idea of local self-government. It's all rooted in this Gemara. He then proceeds to get, to get into a fairly detailed discussion of numerous different shitas of Rishonim on the Gemara. He brings a seminal tshuva of the Re'em, Rebilio Mizrahi, which he's uh, very, very impressed with. He, he refers to the Re'em, Begodel Chachmaso, Ve'otzem Pilpulo. He had a uh, tremendous, tremendous analysis of the whole sugya, quoting all the Rishonim and analyzing them. There's almost nothing left to say, he says, K'mat Shlohi Niach Makum L'Shumadim Tavar Adirim. And he quotes uh, the Reim's analysis of the sugya. He goes back and forth and uh, quotes asks questions on various Rishonim. He goes on and on for a while in this vein. We're not going to get into all the intricacies of his discussion. But his conclusion, 
his conclusion after going through the sugi in some detail, he says is that according to virtually all poskim, he says, According to all interpretations of the sugya, according to all the different explanations and opinions in what the sugya is trying to tell us, he says the gedole hadar, the leaders of the generation, have the power. Who are gedole hadar? The ones who are the greatest. There's no one greater than them. No one, uh, no one at their level. They are the gedole hadar. They have they have power not just uh, in Torah. They have the power to enact economic regulation, or a based in Chashuv, a distinguished based in, like the based in of Ravami and Ravasi, they have the power to be Misakin Takanas, power of Hefker based in Hefker, even Bamilsa Deika Ravkalahai Upsei even in an area where there are going to be winners and losers. In other words, this is a distinction that exercised the Rishonim a lot. It's one thing to say that they can make rules which uh, benefit everyone equally. They, they, they do, everyone has the same opportunity. They, they just regulate something in a way that it affects the entire society equally. But the Rishonim talk about the concept of Rav Kalahai, there are certain laws that will affect uh, one, one segment of society to the detriment of others. So, for example, some of the wage controls and price controls. You, you may benefit consumers and you may, maybe to the detriment of the producers of the sellers, of the laborers. Some types of rules will, uh, will benefit landowners at the expense of tenants, some vice versa. Some will benefit uh, other types of businessmen and, and, and not uh, real estate owners. That, that's what the Post can call Rav Kalahai Upsei Delahai. So that, that's a more controversial type of legislation where it's inherently not equal. There are going to be winners and losers. Says, that, says Maria Ibn Leib, this is going to be debatable. We'll see. My bit is not at all happy with this, but says Ibn Leib, According to virtually all Rishonim, the, if you have these uh, superlative authorities, Gedole Hadar, She'ein Bechal Hadar, Gedolim Kamosam, or a basin Chashuv like Ravami and Ravasi, they have the right to make Takanas. If they fail, it's in the overall interest of society, even if in the, in, in the immediate result is that it'll be Rav Chalahai, Yupsei Delahai. Then he goes on, before apply, he hasn't, still hasn't yet applied this to our case of the boycott, then he goes on and he says, getting back to our situation of the boycott, he says, after I've completed my analysis of the sugi, I've made my comments on the sugi, he says, I want, to, I want to return and formally address the question of my correspondent about this boycott. He says, everyone would agree, all, uh, all arguments point in the same direction. The yesh reshutz biyad hachamim biyad kehilos to make to enact this boycott im yaskimu rubam. All they need is majority; it doesn't have to be unanimous to make this takana the takana of the boycott because it is a milsa de sakanta vadifimim migdar milsa. And uh, as we say, chamira sakanta meisura. So, what is migdar milsa? Migdar milsa is a concept; it's a, it's a motivation or a rationale for takanas. A takana that is well migdar milsa is to avoid some serious problem to to address some some grave concern whether it's a spiritual one you know, ruchnius people are doing averus whether like in this case begashmius or, or people's lives are in danger to address a, a temporal concern to people's safety migdar milsa is a takana which is being enacted kind of uh, for exigent circumstances to address an exigent concern then he says kolap and shavin that a community has the right to pass binding legislation. Not exactly clear how Ibn Lave is, is defining community. Does he mean to define all of Turkish Jewry as a super community, and as long as most communities agree to enact the boycott, they can force the recalcitrant communities? Does he mean within each community, if most people agree, even if there's a minority that's opposed, each community can enact a boycott for itself? But either way, Ibn Lave is telling us that if we're dealing with exigent circumstances, if we're dealing with some kind of emergency, spiritual or temporal, temporal in his case, danger, chamira sekantame isura, classic migdar milsas are often have to do with isurim, Basin can act extrajudicially, extra-legally to uh, enforce compliance with halacha, and chamira sekantame isura, when there's sakana, when there's danger, when there's mortal peril, that's even more, it's even more of an issue than isura, the, the halacha always is, Therefore, Ibn Leif says, making a takana to secure the safety of Jews is a perfectly legitimate exercise of local, local governmental power, and therefore, if by majority rule people fail this takana is appropriate, then we should do it.
So Ibn Leiv is not even really addressing the... Rishua Sancino spends his whole tshuva debating whether there is danger, there's no danger, and how do we weigh the danger to the Jews left in Ancona. Ibn Leiv doesn't acknowledge Bechlal any danger to Ancona. It, it seems from the historical accounts we have that the, the various Jews of Ancona and Pizarro had both written, their, written letters explaining their side of the story to the Rabbanim. It's possible Ibn Leiv hadn't yet been contacted by the Jews of, of Ancona. It's possible he just discounted what they said. He should have acknowledged it if he, if, he, if he heard it and didn't think it was true. So it's not clear why he doesn't really engage the question of the danger to the Jews of Ancona. But his tshuva is very one-sided. He only discusses the danger to the Jews in Pizarro. If, if there's no boycott, they will be in danger. He says it's Karov Levadai. When he sets up the question, he says it is Karov Levadai, that there will indeed be danger. So unlike uh, Rabbi Yeshua Sensino, who's, uh, who's not at all sure that there's actually going to be danger, he's pretty sure that there is. And therefore, he says that there's not much to talk about. That, again, he doesn't say that you have to make the boycott, but he says it's clearly a, there's clearly a legitimate reason for the boycott. And therefore, this is a perfectly legitimate textbook example of the exercise of local governmental power. Therefore, if the communities decide to make the boycott, it is in, in support of an eminently legitimate goal, Migdar Milsa, to avoid Sakana, and therefore the boycott would be justified. Gidola Mizos, he says, I have, uh, I have a precedent in a tshuva of the Rivash. Rivash was talking about a very interesting case a couple of centuries earlier. Rivash was talking about a case that a community had decided that they would not ship wheat. It's hard to follow exactly what the story was, but apparently there was a North African community that had decided they would not ship wheat in the port of Honein. I don't know how to pronounce that. Hevav Nun, Yud Yud Nun, in English, or in Latin characters, it is H-O-N-A-I-N-E, in Algeria. That they, they, they passed a ban on Jews would not ship wheat out of this port to the Christians. Laretz Edom, to the land of the Edomites, which is the Christians. They would not ship wheat from the Muslim area of Algeria, from the port of Hornein, to the Christians. Why not? So the initial reason was because the local Muslims, the local Arabs, were very upset. The, the, somehow this wheat was being used for military purposes. It had to do with the, prep, the preparing of ships. Of preparing, uh, of preparing some kind of uh, some kind of boats, and there was a concern in Algeria that these boats would be used to launch an invasion, to launch an attack on Algeria or or other, or various Islamic interests, and uh, and the, and therefore they were considered. This was considered treasonous and disloyal, and so on, and that was the reason for the initial Haskama. It seems that the concern had passed away. It seemed that, the, that, that now it was understood that these ships were not being prepared for, to, in, in, uh, in anticipation of an invasion of Islamic interest. Now that now, now the Muslims were no longer worried about this, uh, about this provisioning of the Christian uh, navy. So now they wanted to repeal the Takana. They had reasons to repeal the Takana. So the Rivash is discussing whether they can. He's discussing the laws of Nadarim and of Khairim. Do they have the right to repeal this Takana? But at the end of the tshuva, the part that Ibn Leif quotes, at the end of the tshuva he says that there's a new concern. Forget the concern of treason, that you're arming our enemies who are preparing an invasion against Islamic interests, against us. There's another concern, he says. The local Muslims, if they see you exporting wheat out of the country, that's not going to be good for wheat prices. That can cause a rise in local wheat prices. And wheat is very important, chayin efesh. And this could, this could launch uh, terrible eva, terrible uh, animosity from the Muslims against their, the Jewish merchants. The, the, people always think the Jews are controlling the world, they're manipulating prices. If, if, they see that the Jews, if they see the Jews are exporting wheat and manipulating local prices, causing prices to skyrocket and shortages, this could lead to terrible problems from the Muslims. And therefore, that itself is a reason why they should keep the Haskama they should keep this ban on exporting wheat out of this port because, uh, because it could lead to terrible friction with the local Muslims. In Tunis, in Tunisia, he says, it was a similar story. The Arabs were getting very upset when they were shipping wheat out, and it became, the situation became quite dangerous. Jews had to abandon the area. Therefore, he says, this is, a, this is a real concern. He says, you shouldn't do this. However, he says, if they do this at a time where the wheat prices are so cheap, the wheat is so readily available 
there's no concern that the prices will, uh, will be forced up, he says, then it's okay, because then there's, then there's no psychona, there's no danger, so that's fine. So Ibn Lev mentions this rivash that you see that, that, that avoiding sakana is a very good reason to make takanas, to, to make bans, and to regulate and restrict commercial activity. Commercial activity that's likely to cause problems it may be restricted by the community, should be restricted. Therefore, Ibn Lev says, this boycott is necessary, the boycott of Ancona is necessary to support the, the Pizarro economy and, to, and, to, and so on. That's a very, there's very good, there's very good reason for it. Socially, the Jews in Pizarro stand to suffer terribly if they don't do the boycott. Therefore, this is a perfectly reasonable exercise of local governmental power, and he is entirely in favor of it, he says. He doesn't even want to belabor the point, he says. This is so obvious, he says. I don't think anybody would disagree, he says. I don't want to even bother my correspondent by spending more time on proofs and so on. This is enough. There's nothing more to say, he says. This is, this is, the matter is settled. Whether he actually felt nobody would disagree or not, or that's simply a rhetorical device, I don't know. We've already seen Rabbi Yeshua Santino disagreed, and now we will see that the Mabit disagreed as well. The Mabit often disagreed with Rabbi Yosef Karo. There, 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 are, there are many cases where they had major disagreements. Sometimes they got uh, quite animated. In this case, the Mabit does not get so animated, but uh, the Mabit does not at all agree with... with, with I'm sorry, the, the, the Mabit often disagrees with Rabbi Yosef Karo, here, he's disagreeing with Rabbi Yosef Ibn Leif. So Ibn Leif thought nobody would disagree with him, he says. Here, I confuse the two Yosefs again. Here, the Mabid does disagree with Ibn Leif and is not at all convinced by his analysis. So we'll begin, we'll look at the Chuva of the Mabit. We'll see how he, how he relates the question. He says, uh, we have this terrible, this terrible tragic episode. Kenoda, the, the well-known story that happened in Ancona. Everyone knows what happened, he says. And, uh, and some Jews left and went to Pizarro. So some escaped Ancona, got to Pizarro. When the Duke, the, the Duke received them with, uh, warmly because uh, self-interest. He knew that they would, it would be good for business. He hoped it would be good for business. And, uh, and, and, and he thought that they, and, and they too, the, the Jews who moved to Pizarro, they agreed, they, they, they agreed that they also wanted to, uh, wanted to reciprocate by bringing him their, their business. And therefore they wanted to enact this boycott. And they sent messengers to, to Turkey, he says, to the great communities in Turkey, to agree to sign on to this boycott that no Jew should, no Jew should continue to do business with Ancona. Rather, they should redirect all their trade. Anyone going to that part of Italy should redirect their trade to the port of Pizarro. So he says, the Rishon, the Rishon Mukhaldabra the first community to all matters of holiness, was, of all the Kilos Akedoshos, was... Salonika. Salonika is a city I've been fascinated with for many years. Salonika was once a, uh, a, a legendary Jewish city full of Torah and uh, Jewish life. Today, people have barely heard of Salonika. They've heard of the, you know, the music CD, Kol Salonika. They've maybe heard of it on a Jewish history lecture somewhere. Salonika was once uh, one of the greatest cities of, of, of Jewish Torah in, in, in all of Gullus, the Salonika in the 16th century, the 17th century, the 18th century, was a, uh, was, was a thriving, thriving city of numerous Gedolei Torah, of the Sfardim, the Marashtam, the Lechem Rav. Many, many Gedolei Torah of the Sfardim were in Salonika. It was a, it was a flourishing city of, uh, of, of, Sfardic, of Sfardic life and Sfardic Torah. The Salonika was the first city that, was, uh, that, that, dealt, that considered this boycott, the, the Chachme Salonika agreed that they would, that they would indeed uh, enact a boycott. However, there was a condition. They, they said, we, we, we agree with this boycott, but we, 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 we want to see what other major cities in Turkey say. Today, Salonika is in Greece. Back then, it was all part of the uh, Ottoman Empire. It's practically Turkey for our purposes. So they wanted to see what the other great cities in, great Jewish cities in Turkey would do. They mentioned three other cities. Constantina, Constantinople, Istanbul today, uh, Andrinopoli, Andrianople, Edirne today, I'm not sure how to pronounce that, and Barusa, Bursa, another city in Turkey about which I know less. So they said, if these three cities agree, we will agree as well. So what was the reaction of these three cities? So in the first two, in Constantinople and Adrianople, 
they agreed to make this uh, Haskama. Some merchants disagreed, but the overall, the, overall, the overall consensus was they would do it. In Berusa, they did not agree. In Bursa, they did not agree to make this Takana. And they had their own reasons. Their reasons were, again, their reasons were not because uh, they were concerned about the Jews in Ancona. That was what uh, Rishua Sansino talked about. They were concerned about their own commercial interests that we mentioned earlier. Somehow the port was not uh, well designed, the port was not uh, satisfactory in Pizarro, and that could somehow lead to, not very clear, it can lead to mikrim roim v'nemanim, it could lead to great problems in their business if we don't have a proper port, and therefore they were unwilling for, for their own commercial interests. And therefore the other cities as well, because Bursa would not join the Haskama, other cities as well began to began to drop the Haskama, would, would not join it, and some, some of them followed it and would, would avoided Ancona, some of them did business with Ancona, but uh, as, as these things go, once you don't have uh, consistent and uh, unanimous uh, participation, the Haskama falls apart. So the Haskama was not working because Bursa held out, Salonika had made its acquiescence contingent on other cities, and the whole thing was starting to unravel because uh, people weren't following. Now, Baros Hagveras Hamaforsemeth Bechala Malchias, when that great woman, well known throughout all the kingdoms, she was the animating uh, force behind this boycott. The reference is to Dana Gracia Mendez Nasi, a uh, legendary Jewish figure of the 16th century. She was a very, very rich and politically active woman. She uh, was involved in business. She inherited her very rich husband's commercial interests. She was widowed as a young woman in her 28, I think. She was a major power, very, very, uh, very loyal to the Jewish people, very much acted in the interests. Uh, she and her son-in-law, Rabbi Yosef Nasi, were uh, acted, uh, acted, you know, power, uh, they, they, they tried very hard to advance the interests of Sephardic Jewry. She was the one behind this boycott. She was the one pushing this boycott. So when the Gveret, when, when the woman whose fame is, is uh, well-known in all uh, throughout the kingdoms, she saw the Haskama was failing, so she redoubled her efforts to, uh, to, get, to get it uh, enforced. She went back, she wrote to the, to the Chachme HaAyaro, she wrote to the Chama of the various cities, the big cities, to please have some compassion for these, for these Jews in Pizarro, that, that, that if, they, uh, if they don't make good on their commitments to the Duke, they had apparently committed to the Duke, they'd bring him, they'd bring him commerce, and if they can't do that, then the, they're going to be humiliated, and not just humiliated, they're worried about their lives, maybe he'll punish them for, for the betrayal of his, uh, of his trust. And the Chachamim generally agreed, he says, and they, uh, the Chachamim tried very hard to convince people, they agreed with her, they, they tried hard, to convince Jewish merchants to go to Pizarro rather than Ancona. And what about the port? The Duke would fix it, and he would improve it so that it would be safe and, and, and uh, tolerable. Again, some listened, some didn't listen. Again, it still wasn't, uh, it still wasn't quite, uh, quite universally accepted. This is all background. Now he says, One of the Chachamim who didn't sign on the initial psaac, but then wrote a tshuva, the references to Maria ben Leiv, he wrote that the communities, the Chachamim, do have the right, with by majority rule, Miaskimu Rubam, to make this Takana because of Milsa de Sakanta. So first, uh, because it's dangerous, because the Jews were in danger, that's ample reason to, to grant the Jews, to grant the communities, the Chachamim, the right to make such Takana. So first he discusses the part of the Tshuva, which, the, the technical part of the Tshuva that we omitted, the, the, how he understands the Sugya, the different Shittas of Rishonim and Achronim, and he has uh, several issues with Ibn Lave's treatment. But now, he said, now he addresses Ibn Lave's conclusion, which is, since it's an issue of Sakana and Migdar Milsa, he says, surely that's a good enough reason to uh, authorize the communities and the Chachamim to enact such a binding Haskama. And he brings the Rivash, that, the, that when the Sakana, certainly we can, we can, we can enact Takanas. So, Mabit says, first of all, he says, you're... You're not, you're, you're, not, you're not acknowledging all the facts, he says. You're taking for granted one side of the story, that there is Sakana in Pizarro, because the Duke will get very upset. But others say, no, as we saw last, as we saw last time, Rabbi Shua Sancino's Chuva, others say, there's no danger from the Duke. The Duke is an enlightened and rational fellow, he says. 
the Duke understand it's not their fault, that they tried whatever they could. If we don't agree, they did their part. They, 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 uh, they, 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 they did whatever they could to convince the Jews to transfer their commerce to Pizarro. If they fail to do so, the Duke is Yashar, he's upright, Shofit Kalars, Layasa Mishpato. That's the Pasuk uh, that Avram tells Hashem about destroying stone. Hashofit Kalars, Layasa Mishpat. So he uses that about the Duke. The Duke is a wise and enlightened ruler. Surely he's not gonna he's not gonna he's not gonna take such perverted revenge, blame them for something that's not their fault. And furthermore, the other the other argument that uh, that, that they stand to suffer, that their ships will, will suffer from trying to use the inadequate port facilities in Pizarro, is also uh, he said that, that that that's a legitimate claim, he says. So Ibn Laiv, he says, completely ignores the these claims, A, that there's no real danger to the Jews in Pizarro. B, that the merchants have a very legitimate reason not to want to do business, not to want to bring their ships to Pizarro, because uh, the port facilities are inadequate. So that, that's his first point. That is, uh, that, uh, as to the fact, Ibn Lev is not acknowledging the full range of claims and factual possibilities. Okay, that's similar to what we saw last time from Rabbi Yeshua Sansino. Now, now the Mabit makes a very interesting further argument. He says, even if the facts would be correct, even if we acknowledge that, A, that there is danger to the people in Pizarro, and even if we acknowledge that, yes, that, that there is, uh, that, 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 but, but it's also true, he says, that there is danger to the, to the ships, that, that, that they stand to have financial losses from their ships. So what's Allah in such a case, he says, that if we don't do the, the boycott, if, if we don't move the commerce to Pizarro, the Jews in Pizarro will be in mortal peril. But if we do then they stand to suffer, the merchants stand to suffer economic losses from bringing their ships into places with inadequate port facilities. So you might say, what, what kind of question is that? Since when are human lives, since when are, are, since when are, are human lives uh, not to be valued more than mere economic consideration? Not so simple, he says. Not so simple at all. He says, and this is a key point that people often uh, overlook, he says, you're right, Los Amaral Damreyecha, saving Jews from death is certainly very, very important. And it overrides concerns for property. Absolutely true, he says. However, he says, why do they have to bear the losses, he says. Just, why should the merchants bear the losses? Klal Yisrael has an obligation to save the Jews at Pizarro. So if they, so Klal Yisrael should finance the uh, expeditions to Pizarro. Klal Yisrael should pay for Klal Yisrael as a whole should pay for mercantile expeditions to Pizarro to make the Duke happy. Why do these particular merchants have to be the ones to bear the loss? They're not the ones who are mechuyiv in in Atzalus Nefashos and Los Amal Damriecha more than anyone else's. He says. He says the. It's true. The halacha is that if the only way to save somebody's life is by spending money, then yes, you spend the money. But the person who goes in to save the life, he has the right to charge. If if, if he if he's giving up something, if he's giving up his time, he has the right to bill. And people have to pay for it. He says, so let's say, for example, there are 10 Jews around, and they see somebody drowning. They all have a mitzvah to save the Jew from drowning. They can't just, so let's say one, only one of them knows how to swim. Only one of them is a trained lifeguard with rescue equipment, so he's going to be the one to go in. So they can't all point fingers at him and say, well, you do it, because you're the one who knows how to do it, and we're all potter. He can say no. He can say, this is a service. It's worth money. We should all pay for it, me included, yes. Let's, let, let, let's say a rescue expedition, you know, when they have to get those helicopters to rescue somebody who's, uh, who, who, who gets sick on a mountain and has to be uh, medevaced out. The, the, it costs money. Ambulances, private ambulances cost money. These things all cost money. Who pays for the ambulance? Who pays for the helicopter? Everyone does, he says. First, we'll, we'll get to the victim himself soon, but before the victim, everyone pays for it, he says. So if there's ten people around and one of them is going to jump in, he can bill. He can bill everyone else. If, 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 if his rate is $200, he bills $200. There are 10 people around, so they all have to pay 20 The other nine people give him 20 each, and he, and he eats the 20 out of his pocket. So he says there's no rule that the person who happens to be the merchant, he's the one who should have to bear all the costs. They can turn to the other communities and say, okay, we stand to lose money by taking our business to Pizarro. We have to do what you're telling me because we have to save the lives of the Jews in Pizarro. So let's all bear the costs. Let's all get together and we'll tax everyone. You'll all indemnify me against any losses that I have. You can't force them. You can't just impose a boycott on them and say, you bear the losses, you do it. Why me? We all have to do it. Um, I have to suffer because we all have a mitzvah to save Jewish lives in Pizarro. Spread the cost equally. We should all bear it. 
And if I stand to lose $10,000, so indemnify me against the $10,000. If there are 100 of us, we'll all lose $100. We'll all put up a $100 bond in case I, I, I suffer this possible $10,000 loss. And this comes up a lot with things like drug companies. People say, you know, drugs save lives. Why don't you go and give them all the drugs? Well, I happen to have the drugs, but the drugs are worth money. Society should pay for the drugs, so let society pay for the drugs. Uh, tax everyone for it. Uh, have universal health care, whatever you want to do. But there's no reason that the, just because the drug companies happen to have the drugs, that's not a reason why they should be the ones to have to bear all the losses. Again, you can argue that their costs are a sunk cost. It's more complicated over there. But in general, this is a, a, a very a, 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 a subtle but very fundamental rule that, that, that comes up in, in, in Assaults Nefashas and Pikuach Nefesh. Yes, you have to do it and you have to spend money, but not uh, this specific person. If, if you happen to be the doctor, that doesn't mean I have to bear the cost of doing the operation. I can, I can send the bill to everyone else. We don't have to do it. Just because I'm going to be the one who actually is the one to, to implement the operation doesn't mean I don't have the right to spread the cost among everybody else. My father would often ask, would often struggle with the question, well, right now, nobody else is here. The guy comes to your door and says, I need the surgery right now. Yes, I, I really should collect a dollar from 50,000 people, but nobody else is giving me. And right now, I'm at your door. So you give me all $50,000. Do you really have to do that? Or can you say, no, you should be trying harder to get the money from everybody else? So it's a difficult question to answer. How to grapple with that question is unclear. But certainly, the principle is that Tzalus Nefashos can't be billed to any one specific person. It, ideally, certainly, if possible, the cost should be spread among everyone who has the mitzvah of the fascists. Therefore, the Mabit's point is, even if we accept the facts that the people in Pizarro are in mortal danger, there's no reason the merchants who are going to, to that, that part of Italy should have to be the one to bear the cost of Asal's Nefashis. The cost should be shared among the, all the Jews who have a mitzvah of Asal's Nefashis. Furthermore, the Mabit says, the halacha is the victim himself can be billed for costs of Atzalas Nefashas. As you mentioned earlier with the ambulance, with the helicopter, the halacha really is they themselves can be billed. If you don't have time to bill them, if he doesn't have money, you have to, you have to save his life, even if you're not going to be able to bill. You know the guy is indigent, you know, the bill will never get collected, you still have to spend the money. But certainly you have the right to turn around and send him a bill, and if he has the money, he has to pay it. You're not mechay, even, though it's a, even though it's a great mitzvah of Atzalas Nefashas, you don't have to do it for free. I mean, you do have to do it for free if there's no way of, of billing him. But if you can bill him, you don't have to do it for free. You're perfectly, you're perfectly entitled to bill him for the money. So here, too, he says, the Jews in Pizarro are crying to us, we need you to move your commerce here. Okay, if I move my commerce here, I'm going to lose a lot of money because my ships are going to have trouble in the inadequate port facilities. Therefore, the Mabit says, first of all, you are the merchants can say, the rest of the community, you, uh, you bear your share of the cost. Furthermore, they can demand that the Jews in Pizarro uh, support them and indemnify them against, against, any, against possible losses. They can bill them for any losses that they have. So therefore, the Mabit fails. Enacting a boycott is, a, is, a, is an unfair way of solving the problem. First of all, he's not convinced there is a problem, like Rabbi Yeshua Sancino. Furthermore, even if there is a problem, he says, the boycott is not a fair way of solving the problem, because the boycott is forcing the, the merchants who are traveling to that area to assume all the risk for, the, for, 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 for helping the Jews in Pizarro. That's not fair. The, 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 the cost should be borne equally by the Jewish community in general, and it should be billed to Pizarro. So a simple boycott that doesn't have those measures is not fair and therefore inappropriate. However, the Mabit says, his last paragraph, he says, is omnam achen roi v'hagun, he says. You have to be honest, he says. You have to really be concerned, not just making excuses. The Sochrim have to ask themselves, honestly, he says, think about how great the mitzvah of Hasel's Nefashis is, and how terrible the Avera, the punishment is, for someone who ignores another Jew in danger. And they have, they have to think, are you really so worried about these losses, or are you just making excuses? He says, he says uh, is this a real concern, or are you just, or are you just uh, not interested in helping your fellow Jew? He says, even if, you, even if you can make a claim and you can fool us, he says, maybe you'll fool us. We don't know. We, we, we're, we're, we're human beings. We, we don't know the future. We, we can't know for sure. Hashem knows, he says. Hashem knows whether you're, whether you're making this claim in good faith or not. Kel deus Hashem. Vidurish libos b'nei adam. enough, he says. So he says, Hashem knows whether you're really concerned about this or not. If you're not concerned, you're just making excuses. That's a terrible thing. You're ignoring Lassam and al-Damreyecha because of trumped-up, uh, made-up excuses, that's not appropriate, he says. That, that's a terrible thing. 
But if, but if, and Hashem knows whether that's whether you're you're making, you're making this claim in good faith or not. But if there is real danger, once again he winds up. He reiterates his original point. He says, if there is real danger, he says, then that that then the then the selchrim have to then the merchants have to be then the merchants have to be indemnified against that, and all the communities have to have to help uh, indemnify any merchant who chooses to go there to Pizarro to, you know, to, help, to help the Jews in Pizarro. The other merchants have to indemnify him, and, uh, and they have to cover him, so that they have to put up the money to back his venture. And if there will be losses, then again, they have the right to build Pizarro, as he said earlier. So at the end of the day, just enacting a boycott is a simple but unfair solution to this problem, even if the facts are correct. And uh, if, if you want the right thing to do, is for them to be, is for, the, is for the community to agree to indemnify him, and then to turn around and build Pizarro if there are any losses. But again, you have to be honest, he says. If, they, if, the, danger, if the danger to the merchants is not real, then certainly the, the tremendous mitzvah of saving Jews from danger certainly would, would, certainly would tell them that they have to go to Pizarro if there's no skin off their nose and, uh, and, and they can help Jews from possible uh, fatal danger. Certainly it is, a, it is incumbent upon them to do so when a terrible mitzvah a terrible mitzvah, a terrible avera for them not to do so. So in summary, we've seen three opinions about the, the Ancona boycott. We've seen Rabbi Yeshua Sancino, in his first tshuva at least, he has a follow-up tshuva, but in his first tshuva at least, he said that there's possible danger in both directions, danger to the Jews in Pizarro, but also possible danger to the Jews in Ancona. He actually found the danger that the boycott would, a, boycott, a boycott would cause to the Jews in Ancona to be greater than the danger that the lack of a boycott would cause to the Jews in Pizarro, and even if they're equal, Sheval Tasadif, he said, and he therefore felt the boycott was wrong as a matter of policy. We have Ibn Lev, who completely ignores any discussion of danger to Jews in Ancona, any discussion of danger to the ships and the merchandise of the merchants who were traveling there. He therefore says it's an open and shut case that the boycott is good policy, because it, it, it helps to uh, avoid danger to Jews in Pizarro, and therefore, in terms of the rules of Takanos and Haskamos, the communities have the right to pass such a Haskama, even against a dissenting minority, because it's Lamigdar Milsa, it's to avoid danger to the Jews in Pizarro. Then we have the Mabit. Mabit is kind of in between. He says he's not sure whether there is danger really or not to the Jews in Pizarro, but even if there is, he says, still uh, a boycott wouldn't quite be the right method to go about this, because that unfairly places all the costs and they claim they had costs. That clearly places all the costs of doing this on the merchants who tra- would be traveling to Pizarro, which was uh, commercially difficult, he says. That's not fair. So if, we, if they do do that, he says, the, the other Jews in the rest of Turkey should, 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 have to, should have to indemnify them against loss. And furthermore, if there is loss, they have the right to build the Jews of Pizarro based on the standard rule that if, that, that if someone incurs losses or expends, expends money in order to save somebody's life, even though he's mechayif to do that, it's a great mitzvah to do that, it's a great avera not to do that, he still has the right to turn around and bill the cost that he had to the victim, to the person that he saved.